Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today's guest is my very special friend, Christina Ledlow. Christina is certified in perinatal mental health through the Postpartum Support International, or PSI. She is also a certified childbirth educator and birth doula through the International Childbirth Education Association. Christina is Vice President of PSI Michigan, co-chairs the Kalamazoo Perinatal Mood Disorders Coalition, and is a member of the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color. Christina works for Bronson Hospital in Kalamazoo as their Perinatal Emotional Support Coordinator, where she works with moms during pregnancy and postpartum that need extra support due to perinatal mood or anxiety disorders. She also facilitates a community support group for these mothers. She has completed advanced trainings in trauma-informed care of the peripartum patient, perinatal psychopharmacology, and the art of holding the perinatal woman in distress with nationally renowned expert Karen Kleiman. Please join me in welcoming Christina. Hey, Christina, how are you? Hello, I'm doing fine. It's good to see you. I am so excited to have you today. And full disclosure, Christina and I are each other's biggest fans. It's true. We love working with each other and we have collaborated on a couple of things that Christina is going to talk about and the work she's doing is just amazing. That's all I can say. Thank you. So going to hop right into it. Tell us about your journey to the world of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, which we will reference as PMAD so we don't have to say that whole long thing, and prevention. So my journey would take a really long time. So I'll give you the the shortened $1.99 version of everything. But basically, I had postpartum depression with my first son. And I've got two kiddos. I've got a son and a daughter. And then I had severe depression and severe anxiety slash obsessive compulsive disorder with my daughter after she was born. What I didn't know at the time was that I was risk factors all over the place. We had undergone in vitro to get my son. So there was the stress of infertility because I had a previous bout of some mild postpartum depression with him. That was a previous factor. I had dealt with anxiety and depression just before in my life. So another factor. And with my daughter, when I was pregnant with her, I had unexpected issues during pregnancy and I had to be on hospital bed rest for quite a while, all kinds of complications. So I spent a whole lot of my pregnancy away from my family, only seeing them, you know, visiting times and in a a little room up on the antepartum floor. So it was really isolating and, you know, it was just kind of one, one day at a time, got to make it through. And all of these things were prime risk factors for after I had my daughter when it got really severe. So after I had my daughter, 
I felt like, okay, is it time? Can I, can I catch my breath? Can I breathe? But I, I wasn't sure that I could. So even though we fought so hard and she had made it and she was safe and my son was, you know, two years old and he was a toddler now and, and things were good and I was home, everything didn't feel good. I felt like I was the only person who could hold her because nobody could do it right in my, in my mind. I had to be the one to make sure that she was okay. I would literally watch her while she slept because I wanted to make sure that she was breathing. People would come over and I would have them wash their hands and then sanitize their hands. And then I would see them touch the remote control that maybe I had not sanitized in like half an hour. And then they had to go and wash and sanitize all over again because I was worried about germs. And, you know, what if something happened to my baby or to my toddler because they had touched something with germs? It got to the point where I would check the door before I would go to bed at night. And I knew I checked it like five times, but I better turn around and check it one more time because what if I didn't really check it five times before? And what if it was unlocked and then someone came in and hurt my family? Or I would be ready to go to bed, but I would start to find myself going in laps around our house where I was looking for sharp objects like scissors or knives or plastic bags because I was afraid in my mind that these things would hurt my children. Like somehow leaving a pair of scissors out on the kitchen counter would somehow harm my child while they were sleeping or a plastic bag would like fly into their room and like suffocate them. I got to the point where I couldn't even touch doorknobs without, you know, either having someone sanitize them first or like putting a tissue in my hand or it was just, my mind was not my own and I was not sleeping. I was not functioning properly. I was really lucky because I had an incredibly supportive family and husband, but it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. So needless to say, all of that, I did get connected with a wonderful therapist. Everything came to be good for me. Ultimately, I got connected with a great therapist. I got put on medication and then everything changed. I was like, I'm just changing my career because what do you do when you find something you're super passionate about, right? So I completely changed my career. I went into childbirth education and then I started to learn more about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And I believe it was at a conference that I went to for childbirth ed where I was just getting continuing education credits where this woman was talking about postpartum and she started talking specifically about anxiety and OCD and how this leads into depression. And I just started sobbing at this table in the front row. (laughs) And I was sitting there with a few social workers and I think there was like an OB there and a pediatrician. And, you know, they were like, honey, are, are you okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And I stepped out and I called my husband and I remember telling him, Nate, it's a thing. It's a thing. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I wasn't crazy. Like, it's really a thing. And he was like, we never thought you were crazy. And I'm like, but I did. I thought I was. And so everything changed like from that, that conference on. And then I really, really focused my work in on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And then of course, you know, met you and just everything changed. And here I am. And I'm really privileged to do the job that I do. I'm exhausted listening to how hard that was for you. It's just so overwhelming. And, 
you and I have kind of a similar history. I too had postpartum. It was more anxiety than depression. And after my first child, and what was really hard, I was 28 and I was a pediatrician. I was in residency and I just thought I was a bad mom. I thought I was supposed to know what to do because I was in pediatrics. And I too was really fortunate. My husband is an amazing human being and really carried me through. This was at a time when there really weren't very many antidepressants. And so I ended up taking, I think it was Valium at that time. And then I had to stop breastfeeding because I was told it wasn't safe. And I finally recovered after that, but it was a little bit of a traumatic birth in that she was breech and I felt guilty about that. And then she was colicky and I felt like that was, you know, not supposed to happen. I was exhausted. I was crying and I just felt like a huge, huge failure. So I didn't really know that there was a thing called perinatal mood and anxiety disorders either. And again, how you and I stumbled upon each other, I'm not quite sure, but what a gift. Divine intervention. Exactly. So you've already talked a little bit about some of the impact on you personally. Just in the work that you're doing, what kinds of impact do you see on women and their partners? Because it can affect partners, whether it's a husband or a wife, and also the babies? Well, there's no question. When mom is not okay, nobody is okay. When mom is not okay, baby is not okay. If mom can't feel, you know, whether it's physically and emotionally, they're, they're so closely tied to, especially during pregnancy and postpartum when our bodies feel like they're not their own. But if mom is not feeling like she is up to the standards that we put on so so many mothers as a society, whether it's, you know, just the basics of, you know, looking nice after, you know, you get out of the shower and being able to put on, you know, a little bit of makeup or even comb your hair or getting sleep. We all know that sleep- Or even taking a shower. Yeah, or even taking a shower, you know, and we all know that, that sleep deprivation, I mean, that's what we do to torture people. So, all of these things, when, when you can't do them, you can't function properly. And if you can't function properly, how can you be, you know, as so many mothers are, the hearts of their family? And to much less try and take care of yourself, but to try and take care of others, it's, it's impossible. And aren't the statistics pretty significant? I'm remembering one in five women are affected and one in 10 dads or partners. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. One in five women, one in 10 dads. So what we tend to see is after moms go through their, whether it's anxiety or depression or, or any kind of mood change postpartum, what we see is a lot of time partners who are lifting up moms and who are their main support person tend to sometimes fall ill themselves where they have had that pressure for so long that now they feel the same kind of thing I was discussing where can I breathe now? I don't know. Is it okay? Is the other, you know, shoe going to drop? So that's where we see it on that other end where they talk about one out of 10 partners being affected. 
I think that was alarming, but I can sure think about in my practice having a couple of dads really break down. I think partly it was the exhaustion and they just weren't prepared to have a baby. I mean, how do you prepare for something that, you know, you just don't have any concept of what it's like to have a baby. I don't, you know, I don't care how many books you've read or how many classes you've been to until you have that baby in your arms. You just don't know. And each baby, of course, comes with their own personality. So my lovely colicky daughter, you know, <laughs> she she really was difficult and, you know, through no fault of her own, of course, but I was just so afraid I was going to do something to harm her. And then with my second, it was much better. So not every pregnancy is the same, but she also ended up in the NICU. So that was just one more thing. But I was in a different place in my career, and I think that made a difference for me. One of the things I think that's happening is that we're screening moms now during both pregnancy and now even more so in postpartum, so both in their OB offices and now in family practice and pediatric offices. And there's a little pushback, honestly, because, you know, the moms are not patients. And so there's a worry that we're going to open this Pandora's box maybe even find a mom who has suicidal thoughts. And what do I do with this parent who's not my patient? So sometimes that stands in the way of asking, why is it important to ask in those settings? It's important to ask, I think, in in all these settings. And I think you're right around, I know around here, we're doing, you know, the Kalamazoo area, we're doing a good job. Unfortunately, not everywhere is doing super great. Not everywhere screens like they should during pregnancy and postpartum, but we're making good headway around here. Let me talk just a little bit about screening. Is that okay? Can I talk about? So, so we use what's called the Edinburgh tool. And it's kind of a universal tool that we use to just determine how mom has been feeling within the past seven days. And so based on this tool, which because it's universal, we all kind of know how to, to score it. So it's nice if we talk to each other and say, a mom got this kind of score, we, we know where she's at with everything. So any mom that takes the Edinburgh, we don't like to see anything above a 12. And we certainly don't like to see any mom that ever thinks about harming herself is one of the questions on there. The reason that it's so important for us to do that is because just like I said before, if mom's not okay, baby's not okay. So in pregnancy, that means if mom is really stressed out and she is not all right, or she is sad, or she is anxious, then what's happening is her maternal cortisol levels are going up. And when that happens, that affects baby, that affects baby's brain development. So there we're making sure mom's okay. So baby is okay as well. When baby is out of the womb, you know, again, if mom's not okay, baby's not okay. So she's got to take care of this child. So we need to make sure that her mental health is taken care of. The biggest things that I tell any providers when we're doing trainings is you don't have to diagnose moms. If you give her this test and you're like, whoa, this is, this is high. This doesn't look good. I need to do something about this. You don't have to be the one to facilitate the therapy or the medication or any other kind of you know, intervention of that kind, you just need to get her to the right person. So in your office, maybe that is, you know, the social worker, or maybe it is a nurse that can reach out, you know, in the Kalamazoo area here, we've got fantastic social workers that work with the OBs and the PEDS offices, and we have a good network around here. So the nice thing is, We have what we need in place. You don't have to diagnose her. We can do all of the legwork. You just need to get her to the right people. And that's what screening gives us the ability to do. And 
I think we've been doing it maybe about a year and it was surprisingly easy, honestly. And parents, you know, the moms really appreciate being asked. And I often share, you know, this happened to me and I I will often say, you know, I just felt like a bad mom and I didn't know. And I would not wish that on you. And if this is something that you're experiencing, maybe not right now, but if it comes up, you talk about it here. You have a place and we'll find you some help. As you mentioned, we're really fortunate. We have social work embedded in our practices and not all practices are fortunate to have that. But I do think that there are things that you can do by the asking in and of itself is therapeutic. So just kind of reassuring people that, hey, you're not crazy this happens, this is a thing, and let me get you connected. That might look like finding the one therapist in town that has those skills. One of the things I think that is unique now about COVID and may open up some resources is all the virtual care that we're doing. So there may be a therapist who is skilled in PMAD, and they really do need to have specialized training. And maybe you're somebody in a very remote area. So for us, that would be the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Well, maybe there's somebody downstate that could provide that care to somebody upstate. So I think there's going to be some new opportunities. So I would reassure pediatricians and other professionals that are listening that, as Christina said, you don't have to be the one to treat the patient. You just need to get them to where they can have help. Now, certainly if they have suicidal thoughts, if question number 10 is a yes, then you need to initiate that. And all pediatricians and family practitioners should have a plan in place for the suicidal patient. So, you know, generally we're talking about our kids, but whatever the process is, we should be able to put that into place. And whether it means contacting the emergency room or talking to a family member, and there are really HIPAA does allow to talk to a spouse or the patient's mother in the event that you're worried about the safety of the mom or the safety of the baby. And women having these scary thoughts is not child abuse. Um, And I think sometimes people get in trouble with that. And there is, of course, the rare cases of psychosis and there's some pretty famous cases. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I know you went to a conference and heard about that and it was pretty riveting. Sure. So I do want to go back real quick to what you said, Leah, just to address it. We do have therapists that this is their arena of expertise because it is so important. When moms are struggling, we need to get them to the right person that's going to put the fire out now, not somebody that's going to peel back all of the layers of their life and potentially make things worse. So that is one really huge reason that making sure that mom gets connected to the right person is so, so imperative. And like you said, if you are in the Upper Peninsula, and I know we're, you know, talking just in terms of Michigan, but really anywhere, if anyone hears this, that's anywhere, Postpartum Support International, that I know that you are going to put down the resource on your website. Is that right, Leah? So Postpartum Support International is a fantastic resource that you can literally go onto the website and just plug in where it is that you live, and it will connect you with a coordinator that can get you the help that you need. So it's available for not only providers to be able to use, but also for moms or family members to be able to use. It's really easy. So, okay. So going back to you, we're talking about moms and scary thoughts. So about 94% of moms are going to have scary thoughts. And some of those scary thoughts, you probably 
know what I'm talking about. You're driving down the highway and maybe you're in back of one of those big trucks that has those logs, right? And you have that thought of, oh my gosh, I need to get out of the way. And, you know, that's what I mean by a scary thought. Now, when you are exhausted and your hormones are compromised because they have just plummeted from having delivered a baby or from being pregnant, you have these scary thoughts, but they're compounded and they feel like you have to be extra protective of yourself or your newborn. So there's two different types of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. There's more than that, but the two that I'm talking about would be like an OCD type of behavior, the obsessive compulsive, and that would be those scary thoughts that are ruminating thoughts that mom feels like she has to take extra measures to be cautious with her life and with babies. So like what you described about yourself. Correct. So that's the mom like me that walked around making sure there was no plastic bags or anything sharp because what if it hurt my baby that scared me to death? You know, maybe a mom says, I'm not going to walk by the stairs because I can see my baby falling. Well, she's so protective of making sure that nothing happens to her child that she literally will not walk by the stairs. So that is a form of an anxiety disorder, postpartum. The other side of that, and this is where unfortunately, if you are not educated on perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, sometimes people can get these crisscrossed and that would be a postpartum psychosis. That is rare. That is one in two of every like 1,000 mamas that would experience a psychosis. But this is where the mom doesn't realize that those thoughts are not okay. She thinks that these thoughts are, are normal. So a lot of times they tend to have a religious connotation in nature. So this would be where mom feels like it's the right thing to do to drop the baby down the stairs because something may be telling her, maybe God or something, or the devil is saying, you, you need to do this because whatever reason, and it's the right thing to do. So mom can somehow reconcile in her mind that she's doing the right thing. That is a psychosis. That is a mom that is no longer in touch with reality. So that's the difference is a mom is seeking help and she's saying these thoughts scare me because scary thoughts can be very scary. I gave you a very mild one, but they can be very frightening. But if a mom is doing everything and these thoughts scare her, then she's okay. She's not okay in the sense we need to get her help, but she's not in psychosis. And that's the difference. So a mom in psychosis is really delusional, believes the thoughts to be true and acts on that. And then of course, the worst case outcome of those is infanticide and sometimes suicide. There are some pretty famous cases where that's happened and heartbreaking We all read about those cases, of course, and I think we are horrified and may not understand where these moms are coming from. Of course, not to excuse what happened, but to understand it. And if we can appreciate that that's happening and getting those moms help and intervening. But I think the point that you made, it's extraordinarily uncommon and anxiety disorders postpartum are extraordinarily common. Yes, they're more common. And I like that you use the word common because that's what I always talk with my moms. It's not normal. It's not normal to feel like this, but it's common and we can fix it. You did say something and I'm sorry I didn't address this. I did attend a conference a few weeks ago and it was really cool because one of the advanced trainings was actually led by George Parnum. He was the um, attorney for Andrea Yates, who years and years ago, She had been in trouble with the law for drowning 
all five of her children and she was found to be insane and she was not in her right mind because she was experiencing a maternal psychosis. And it was extraordinarily eye-opening. It was heartbreaking. It was all of the things that you can expect listening to him speak and listening to some of these other lawyers and mental health therapists and psychiatrists who work on behalf of the judiciary system to work for mom's rights and for her mental health care and how important that is. It is kind of a reframe, I think, that we're looking at these are disorders. No one wants to feel like this. It's not like you get up in the morning and say, gosh, I hope I can have a lot of crazy thoughts and worry all day about my baby and thinking I don't know what I'm doing and that I'm a bad mom. And those are really difficult thoughts. And you compound that again, as you mentioned with fatigue, which I think that there are kind of the number one intervention is make sure you're sleeping okay. And so there are some strategies. I think one of the techniques that I heard one of our speakers at PSI conference was Dr. Muzak from the University of Michigan, who's an amazing woman. And she talked about sleep chunking. I think I had always told moms, why don't you just take a nap when the baby takes a nap? And she said, that doesn't really work that great. And really chunking the time so that you get a chunk of time and dad or your partner gets a chunk of time and you literally make time for sleep. And that was different than the advice I was giving. So that's why I think educating ourselves about this is important. And again, I do think that this really falls in the lap of primary care because this is an opportunity we can catch moms. They may see their OB at six weeks, but we're seeing them two weeks, two months, four months, six months, nine months, a year. And these disorders can last up to a year, sometimes even a little beyond that. Yeah, some will argue up to two years. So it's definitely something that we need to watch for. And what's so what's so awful is these women that I work with and women like you and me, we are all incredibly strong and brave and amazing, capable women. And to go through something that makes you feel such shame because you feel like you're a failure. And you know, all of these things that we talk about, it's it's heartbreaking because we are not failures. We are, you know, doing the best that we can. And I think that's that's the hardest thing to be able to internalize when you're struggling is to know that there is no shame around this. And the bravest thing that we can do is say, we need some help. Things are not okay. Yeah, it's not exactly the kind of thing you put on Facebook or Instagram, right? right? right. I, I love the postpartum stress Instagram site. Yes. And I yes. will make sure that we put that in the resources because it shows these cartoon drawings of a mom holding her baby and looking all wonderful and somebody saying, how are you? And she says, fine, but in the bubble above her head are, I you know, hate my husband, I feel fat, I look awful, I wish I didn't have this baby, all those kinds of things that it's really hard to tell your friends and family that you're having those thoughts because, oh my God, you were all supposed to be, you know, in a glow after having a baby. And the reality is it's hard work. It's hard. People are tired and you have this infant who needs you 24 seven. 
It's hard. You have to keep yourself alive and a baby. It's a whole lot of work. And I think the important thing to remember is to not tire our self-worth to, you know, social media and things like that. You know how you talk about looking at these beautiful pictures of all of these beautiful postpartum women and their families and everything looks great. And that's awesome. But to know that, you know, it's okay to feel the way that we do too. It's incredibly important to, to honor that and to know that we are okay. So I'm wondering, since our audience is pediatricians, are there some things that you can imagine a pediatrician like me saying to a mom about recommendations, things that, you know, she could leave the office knowing, oh, I could try that. So we talked a little bit about sleep, but are there some other self-care things that moms can do? I think just in general, anywhere people can support a new mom, the more people to support a mother, the better. And I think it's hard for a lot of us because just as women, we're used to being the ones that do the supporting and that aren't necessarily the ones reaching out for help. But when someone says something like, let me know what I can do, taking them up on that. And if you are not comfortable, I say this to my moms a lot, if you're not the comfortable one saying, yes, I'll start telling people what I need. I bet you have one friend, even just one person, one friend or one family member that you can say, I need help and they can reach out and they can maybe get other people to help out with like, maybe it's meals or maybe it's someone to come over and do your laundry or, you know, do your dishes. Moms need to worry about, you know, baby right now and all of the rest of the things like the laundry and the dishes and the meals and the family and everything else. It's so hard to do everything. So if you can have any kind of support, even if it's just someone from the church who's offering to come over and just, you know, bake a meal for you. I don't know. Things like that, allowing people to help. Support is so incredibly important. And I know that it's so hard, especially right now with the pandemic and letting people in. But well, support. People always say, how can I help? I love it when people are able to just do things without you thinking about it, because that's kind of hard to come up with your list. But I think that that is all really good advice. And there's even an organization in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Moms Bloom. And they actually had volunteers that would go over to mom's homes and do things like cook a meal, vacuum, do some laundry. And I think that's pretty innovative. I can't remember. Um, it was at some training that I went to, but they were talking about when moms, especially postpartum, are thinking about things they need to do to write it down and to put it on a post-it and just stick it up on their refrigerator. So when people say, what can I do for you? You can direct them to the post-its on the refrigerator, or you can just grab one and be like, oh, I really needed this from the grocery store, or it's right there readily available. So you always know these are things that people can do to help, not at the moment where you're super tired and you know frazzled to go, oh, geez, I don't know right now what you can do. You have something tangible that you can grab and ask for. It's like having a chore jar for your kids, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> very much. So the other thing that I sometimes do is I'll say to the moms, you know, these are some things that people experience with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and you may or may not have them. Sometimes that first couple of weeks we call baby blues, and a lot of that's fatigue, and it's not necessarily a PMAD disorder, but if it goes beyond that, and I often look to the dads or the partners and say, you know, she may not be able to see that she's struggling, but a lot of times you are like, mm, something's not right here. 
So that's the time you need to reach out, whether it's to the OB, whether it's to the pediatrician, family practitioner, whomever is your medical contact. And we're not really going to talk about medication today, but there are medications that can be safely used. And that may actually be a topic for another podcast, you know, because there's a lot of intricacies and information about the specifics of using psychotropic medications during pregnancy and postpartum. But that may be an option. And again, this specialized therapy can be really important. Can you talk a little bit about your work that you're doing at the hospital and in your support group? Sure. So at the hospital, after a mom delivers, she will take that Edinburgh test that we talked about. And then she also takes a risk factor assessment that the brilliant Nancy Roberts up at in Grand Rapids that works for Spectrum developed. But it's a risk factor questionnaire that just gives us an idea of what mom's past risk factors are. So just like I told you, I had no idea that I was just a flurry of risk factors waiting to happen. So it's not a hard and fast that if mom has risk factors that she's going to develop a perinatal motor anxiety disorder, but it does increase her chances. So big ones are like, have you ever had any kind of anxiety or depression in your life? Did Is baby in the NICU? Did you have any you know struggles during pregnancy? Did you have a difficult pregnancy or did you have a delivery that was difficult? So the reason we give this to them after they deliver is because we do want to know things like how was your delivery. So they take these quizzes for lack of better terms. And then depending on where they fall, we are able to assess whether they need myself or someone from social work to go and talk with them and just give them more information about more resources that we have available, like counseling, like medication, like support group. So with that, I also, you had talked about the support group. So we have a community support group here that actually right now we do virtually as well. And it is a beautiful place where mamas that have any kind of perinatal mood or anxiety changes can come and just be able to see a tribe of women that get it. So they are not alone because when you are at home with a new baby, whether you've got great support or not, you feel alone because you're the only one that just had this new baby. So to be able to come together with other women who understand how you're feeling both physically and emotionally is something really powerful. There's something really healing in community and the way they love each other and support each other and listen to one another is really awesome. We're so lucky that we have the capability ability to be able to do that. And it's a double-edged sword right now because we can't meet in person. However, I do think that being online has afforded more people opportunity too to just join us. So we've had actually quite well attendance. Well, and the other big piece of a successful support group is the facilitator, which is you and you do an amazing job. Were that we could clone you and (laughs) have you do this all over the place, but you know, these are concrete things. And I think pediatricians, family practitioners who have an interest in this work, you know, you can get started in your own community starting to find out, reach out who are the therapists, go to PSI conferences. They're great. Christina and I were actually able to get some funding from our health foundation and we sponsored a PSI conference and it was, it was just amazing. It was an amazing two days And I came away just thinking there were so many ways that we can uplift our parents. And also to remember that, you know, pediatricians who have children 
you know, we're at risk too. And whether we're the moms or the, the partner, we have risk factors. And just because we're physicians doesn't give us an opt out. You know, these Nobody disorders can... don't pick who they, right. who they choose. Is there any difference in incidents or differences in women of color? Women of color, there are in the sense that unfortunately we don't have enough support just nationally for women of color to be able to have the same kind of support that that they should have. So support being a support person in the labor and delivery room with them, a support person when they go home, whether that be a partner or a family member or just a friend. So I mean, it's difficult. We have much more work that we need to do with women of color just in general, especially our black mothers and with, you know, obviously infant mortality. But I wish there, that's a whole other podcast, I feel like, that I I could talk so much more on that. But yes, we have a lot more work we need to do and it is more prevalent in communities of color. And, you know, mentioning infant mortality, I really believe that addressing mom's needs and concerns and stressors is vital to survival of babies because if women have trauma histories and bring that to the table and again that's not to blame anybody because we can't help what has happened to us but we internalize so much that if we can address that and find that we can you know essentially save babies and make their lives better so that we're not just repeating this cycle. And again, trauma and adverse childhood experiences is a whole nother thing. But one of the, you know, risks in the adverse childhood experiences study, one of the top 10 questions that was asked was a parent mental health. And so a parent who's not doing well, particularly the mother in this instance that we're talking about, is a critical factor in how children develop. So that's why I think it is an, an issue for pediatricians. I, we have to take this to heart. It, and it is a preventive thing that we can do on the front end. And we're all about prevention. It all ultimately does come back to support, whether it's, you know, with women of color or, or not women of color, because if you have support both, you know, medically and at home, you just, you have so many more opportunities to, to have help available for you. And that's where, you know, we just need to continue to educate and continue to build those support networks for all of our moms, but yes, especially for our mothers of color. So my final question for you, and Christina has shared a whole list of resources, and I will post those in the show notes because there's a lot of them. I think the main one is PSI. But if you could have one wish to ask for to make things better for women and babies, what would it be? Oh, I think support, just support. If we can support our mothers from pregnancy on, then we can move mountains because we can get them the help that they need. We can be available to them. We could offer them more sleep. We could offer them, you know, a chance to sit down and eat. Support is just so, so huge. And also, for every mom to remember that she is worthy and that she is champion of the world. That's my favorite thing to say to my, my moms in classes and in group is 
I hope you know that you're champion of the world. However you have this baby, whether you have a vaginal delivery or a C-section or whether you breastfeed or bottle feed or whether you go through depression or anxiety or you don't, you are an amazing, amazing mother. And I think just knowing their worth and, and internalizing that is incredibly important. I love that expression. And I like to think of pediatricians as champions of healthcare. You know, I'm, I'm biased, but, you know, our whole goal is making the world a better place for kids and everything that we do. And if we are able to champion moms to feel like they are champions and heroes and, you know, that, hey, I got this. And when they don't have it, that we're there, we've got their back. And exactly you know, exactly as you said, I don't have to treat them, but I have to be able to say, hey, I'm really concerned. Let's reach out. One of the cool things I think that happens at our hospital system is that if Christina identifies somebody, we can pass it on to our inpatient social worker, our outpatient social workers, the outpatient OB, the outpatient pediatrician or family medicine physician, and we're all in the loop. And that is a huge piece of that because because then we can create this lovely safety net for our moms yes. and our babies and do Absolutely. really good things for them. So, well, Absolutely. Christina, I can't thank you enough for all the work you do and for spending some time with me today. And it's always such a joy to talk to you. And I am so blessed to have you in my life. And thank you oh, so much. Oh, you, you. Thank you so, so much, Leah. Thank you. Okay, she's amazing, right? I know that word gets overused, but I just can't think of anything else to describe what she does and just her passion and love for moms. And it is just so inspiring. There are a couple of pearls I wanted to share with you. One, PMAD is common. Remember about one in five moms and one in 10 dads are affected. Number two, psychosis is rare, but real. And these women are delusional. They believe that their scary thoughts are real. And that differentiates from women with anxiety disorders who know that their thoughts are kind of crazy, but psychotic moms don't. Number three, moms need sleep and support. Number four, it's our job to ask if moms are okay. Number five, we can help by connecting them to resources. We don't have to be the one who treats them. We don't need to be prescribing medications unless you're an obstetrician or a family practitioner. But pediatricians, don't be afraid to ask. I know they're not our patients, but they directly impact how our patients, our babies do. And number six, on that note, we can impact babies by making sure moms are okay. So if you're not already doing Edinburgh screening, read up on some of the AAP journals and recommendations. The Family Practice Organization also recommends it along with ACOG. So there are lots of reasons why we need to ask moms if they're okay. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy people, but I hope that you have picked up something today that can help you be a better physician. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. 
If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and any thoughts you might have about future topics. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.